Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's investor podcast series. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. I would also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development at QIC. And each Monday morning, we invite our listeners into our Liquid Market Team's Financial Market Update Meeting to get a briefing on the latest themes impacting the equity, fixed income, commodity, currency, and volatility markets. Good morning, everyone. Stuart, I thought we could start with you this morning with our normal update with regards to the asset markets, performances, and themes from the week, and also to touch on that continuing tension between the US and China. Could we hand over to you, please? Sure. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, it has been a very interesting week, actually, and we've seen a bit of a rotation in uh, in asset markets, actually, across uh, country levels, sector levels, and factor levels as well. And I'll leave some of the detail for Rob to go through a little bit later on, but uh, there's also a very interesting assessment from our economics team, which helps to bridge that gap between what's happening on Wall Street and what's been playing out on Main Street and the difference between the experiences there and obviously things have been going pretty well for Wall Street, um, not so well for Main Street. And it's really explained away by the incredible amount of policy stimulus across both fiscal and monetary policy. Uh, and as um, Matthew Peter recorded on Friday, you know there was abundant fiscal stimulus plans for Europe and Japan announced last week. And markets do have that, or investors have that post-GFC precedent where a lacklustre economic environment can still be accompanied by strong risk asset performances. And you mentioned the the US and China tensions. And really, we saw a bit of a scaling back on late Friday um, where there was a highly anticipated speech conference by Trump and uh, and really his big announcement was more so about uh, terminating the relationship with the World Health Organization um, rather than stepping up sanctions or maybe partially unwinding some of that phase one trade deal, things that the market investors were concerned about. So there was a late rally to finish the week, but that's really become undone over the weekend as we've seen a stepping up in really domestic tensions across American cities, um, social unrest, protests there uh, on the ground. And, you know, really in terms of the longer term impact that we're going to see from the social unrest, you know, the market's already shown an ability to look through a deteriorating geopolitical environment alongside the worst pandemic since the Spanish flu and the worst economic slump since the Great Depression. Uh, Again, that speaks to the power of the incredible amount of stimulus from governments and central banks across the globe. But given that it's difficult to conclude that the social unrest we're seeing in American cities will have much impact beyond the short term. Thanks, that's true. Excellent summary. Um, we, yes, oh, we'll get into a little bit more around that social unrest and the impact to markets with Robert in a moment. But can we stay with those sort of global themes? And is there an update on COVID-19 you can share for us both on the domestic front, but also on the global front? Yeah, absolutely. And domestically, the news is unambiguously positive as the states push on with more reopening 
uh, as the number of new infections remains very low and active cases across the country remain below 500. But globally, the story is far less positive as the global growth rate of new infections has started ticking up again. And the highest rate of new infections since the crisis began has actually been in the past few days. Uh, this is led by the Americas, where Brazil's new infections are hitting around 30,000 per day. And we've still got increasing rates of new infections across Chile, Colombia, and Peru. And in terms of other regions, there's growth in the Middle East. There's still some concerns around India. And it's actually very important to realize that, again, something we've been warning for a few weeks now is that the rate of new infections has stopped falling in the U.S., as the country has eased restrictions. And there are some states there where there's a clear increase in infections and California is a very notable one. And also while we're speaking globally, there's uh, fearful of a second wave again in South Korea. So they're shutting down some public institutions, museums, libraries, and things like that. So, um, you know, the, there's still a lot of concern and it really, uh, helps, I guess, to enforce that there won't be a quick reopening of the global economy. And this is this is a danger for you know investors in the second half. Thanks, Stu. And obviously, over the weekend, we had the Queensland government relax uh, travel restrictions through the state of Queensland. And I think this morning, New South Wales also uh, went formal with their restriction easing with regards to uh, pubs and clubs, etc. as well. So that South Korean news is particularly interesting for Australia. Robert, uh, we just heard from Stu then talking about the social unrest with regards to George Floyd occurring in the US. Um, do you concur no great impact expected on the equity markets? And how are you looking at the equity markets this week? Yeah, so I guess if we th if we look at the performance over the last week or so, I mean, equities were broadly up. Uh, the euro stocks significantly outperformed the other, I guess, markets. It was up just over 5%. Uh, the lagger was definitely the FTSE 100. Uh, it was only up one and a half. Uh, and the S&P was up about 3.2. Um, I guess what's probably happened over the weekend has now been priced into the futures, which are open this morning in the US. And that uh, equities are off about one and a bit percent from where they sort of got they closed on Friday night. I guess the big story in the factor space last week was uh, values performance. It put together its second positive week in a row, which it hasn't done since uh, the beginning of December uh, last year. And what we saw actually on Tuesday and Wednesday were two, three standard deviation positive moves, which is very reminiscent of what we saw in September of last year. Unfortunately, it's given back a bit of that, about two thirds of its performance on Thursday and Friday, um, but still managed to finish up around about, at least on our um, country and sector neutral models, up about one and a bit percent. Uh, in the commodity markets, we saw oil finish up about five percent. However, that is up from, it was at, at one point during the week, it was actually off six and a half. So about a 10 percent sort of range that traded over during the week. Thanks, Robert. And um, still a long way to go for value, of course, if you look over the last decade, but uh, nice to see it having a little bit more of a, a run. Um, we might change gears now. And Bev and Paul, I'll bring you both into the conversation, if that's OK, with regards to a policy and economic update with regards to both the RBA, but also, I suppose, the ECB for the week ahead. Yeah, hi, Craig. 
Um, look, I think consistent with what we've just been touching on there and other markets, we did see a little bit more positivity coming through bond markets globally as well. While yield moves were quite contained, uh, we did see that continued bear steepening of global yield curves. Um, and that bear steepening is something that you know, we've been uh, anticipating and, and positioned for across most of our portfolios and continued to, to be positioned that way. Um, like others have spoken about, markets continue to ignore a lot of what it feels is old data. I mean, certainly, you know, anything um, coming through as, you know, lags um, are pretty standard that we're seeing. Any, any data um, for the month of April uh, globally is looking, you know, pretty horrible. And we got some retail sales data out of the US on Friday with a 14% month-on-month fall. Um, you know, markets are dealing, continuing to deal with that that data very well. Um, it's very noisy data, very volatile data. Um, you know, we also got some very strong income data um, in that report as well. So it's a very interesting picture. Um, it's quite consistent with a lot of the themes we've been talking about in Australia also, where, you know, activity is has clearly brought spending down very sharply, but the government stimulus has come in and kicked in very well to help boost um, household incomes through this period for the time being. Um, as you mentioned domestically, but I, I guess before I'll sort of hand over to, to Paul um, for, for the week ahead with the ECB, um, we've got a couple of highlights. Uh, the RBA meeting uh, is tomorrow uh, and uh, expectations are pretty low in terms of any action. Uh, we did get an update from Phil Lowe last week where he sort of already hinted that um, the domestic picture is perhaps coming through a little bit better um, than their previous baseline forecast, but it's obviously early days and still need a lot of continued fiscal support. Um, the other big, I guess, development or release to watch this week will be GDP. Um, we'll get Q1 GDP in Australia this week. Um, and, you know, we've spoken many times about the fact that Australia was had the advantage of going into this a little bit later um, than most other countries. Um, but at the same time, because we were going in later, there was a lot of that pent up and hoarding um, behaviour that went on in Q1. So much so um, that it is actually possible um, that we do print a positive GDP um, for Q1. Uh, now, that's not consensus. Consensus is expecting a small fall, but there's certainly a couple um, of, of forecasters thinking that we could tip into positive, which would be a very interesting development given that, you know, we know Australia has had this unencumbered period of, of, of no recession. Um, if we were to print positive, you know, that might take us through um, that period again. Not that anyone would 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 say that this isn't actually a recession. Um, certainly, an unemployment rate would tell you that that, that this is a, a true re recession. Just that we might not get that two negative quarters, but we'll have to wait until later this week. Thanks, Bev. Um, yeah, no. That, look, I think if the ECB doesn't extend its bond buying program by at least five hundred million this or 500 billion sorry uh this uh this week uh would come as a surprise to the market comes as a disappointment you know comes back quickly on the heels of the how they've been getting on on a weekly purchase it, we expect that to run out by easily by september sort of period so it is well expected that they increase that uh, more importantly in europe you know last week we had the european commission coming out with their 1.2 trillion fiscal package you know which is really the the main stimulus we saw that 
particularly last week with with credit markets and you know the, the fixed income team back in March made a call um, from a risk adjusted perspective that credit was about to turn and things were looking a little up so I think that sort of played out again in, in April and of course in, in May time um, so you know things are are, are quite buoyant there um, from from a from an asset point of view, but certainly um, it's it's being fueled by these fiscal and monetary stimulus programs that we're seeing. Thanks, Paul. And just really quickly, um, from an investor's point of view, if we don't hit that five hundred billion dollar level, what do you think the uh, the impact could be with markets? Uh, well, okay, the ECB has got a history of disappointing. Um, certainly initially with market expectations and then finally they do get there you know they tend to be a little slower even in March we saw that if you remember they were a little slower off the mark with Lagarde's famous statements that we don't back peripheral spreads and um, that was a bad day for anybody in peripheral markets Um, but yeah I I think it would be a little disappointing certainly um, uh, any of the peripheral spreads would sort of disappoint in that regard but I think the realization would come quite quickly that this is a necessity. They're going to have to move uh, eventually, and that tends to be the ECB's um, modus operandi. Awesome. Thanks, Paul. Laurent, we might move across now. Obviously, a lot of people in the market are very conscious of the fact that we've got some pretty high cash balances running around Australia at the moment. Can you give us an update with regards to the banking system and uh, how it's handling this uh, significant cash levels? Yes, thanks, Craig. Um, so the banks are still very flush with cash. Uh, remember that in uh, March and April, a lot of liquidity was injected by super funds uh, by selling down or replacing physical assets with derivatives, as well as the massive injection of cash by the RBA through its open market operations. Um, This theme has been unrelenting since then, and what we've seen now is banks uh, refusing basically to take new inflows. Um, So it's it's getting trickier to find opportunities in that market. The the other thing that's uh, come out on Friday was the RBA statement of assets and liabilities. Uh, and, and what we can see is that government deposits have risen to $69 billion. And also the domestic foreign uh, currency asset mix has changed. And it's risen to now around uh, for domestic assets to around 75% of total assets, which is uh, quite high in terms of historical um on uh, your score view. Um, the other thing is exchange settlement balances uh, currently stand at around $80 billion with surplus balances at $53 billion. Uh, although that fell last week by around $19 billion, that, that was due to the issuance of the December 2030 ACGB, this is still very high compared to the pre-COVID-19 crisis when levels for surplus balances hovered around $2 billion. Uh, the one thing that's going to be very interesting this month is the um, uh, we have 46 bin dollars of reverse repos that are just mature. So it'd be interesting to see how banks uh, refinance themselves through the month. Are they going to source some of that liquidity from uh, the RBA through these open market operations or through the term facility? But I think um, 
it will be more in terms of the uh, open market operations rather than term f funding facility. The, the, the one thing I've got to note about the term funding facility is that it's tracking well behind expectations uh, with only $5.8 billion uh, drawn down of, uh, at, at this stage, uh, which is um, expected, which was expected to be around 84 BL by the end of September. So it's well behind, but I think that's because there is so much cheap funding uh, available in other sources, you know, cheap NCDs and RBA reverse repo opportunities at uh, 18 basis points. Thanks, Laurent. We might continue to keep up to date with you on that particular front and particularly how it might impact investors with regards to those decisions you just alluded to. We might now uh, change tack and get into the uh, sorry into the emerging markets. Um, Paul, we might bring you back into the conversation. Uh, we've just heard earlier how equity markets continue to run in the developed markets. Does that mean we're going to be seeing some opportunities start to open up for a run in the emerging market space? Yeah, I think, um, you know, if we look at a sort of uh, 30,000 foot perspective, emerging markets do offer uh, an aspect of value here, even given the issues that we heard of earlier, you know, with coronavirus and whatnot, that they're, you know, you're still getting six, 700 basis points over of carry. It's still an attractive place to invest. And essentially, you know, what we've been doing, we've been adding to our positions over the last uh, six weeks, eight weeks. And um, so it's it's actually quite an attractive place. So I think uh, if if one looks at it in terms of performance, excess returns, I think it's it's still going to be quite an interesting place going forward. Yield carry as we continue down this sort of zero interest rate world or negative interest rate world, um, we're going to still have those uh, yield seeking strategies, which makes us an attractive place. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Richard, we might bring you into the conversation now with regards to macro credit. And uh, earlier in the week, you sort of gave us that really interesting news around just the amount of issuance that's been occurring in the US. Can you provide us an update there, please? Yeah, well, th thanks, Craig. Really, you know, the first five months of this year has been incredible in terms of IG issuance and, and globally, but really the US being the epicenter of that. So leading into 2020, that the market expectation for gross issuance in the US was between 850 to 900 million, and that's for the whole year. So in the first five months alone, we've seen over a trillion dollars worth of issuance. And really this issuance flood um, was in response to the immediate liquidity risk that stemmed from um, the COVID-19 pandemic. So hoarding cash, um, by issuing debt is the first step taken by companies in, in an intense um, crisis situation. We saw this um, during the GFC and, and, you know, we've seen it again here. Um, one aspect that I would say is different from the GFC has been the demand response to this increased supply. So, so typically, large increases in supply can actually create indigestion in the market and you see um, dealer balance sheets fill up and investors really overrun with bonds. And what you do see is spreads moving meaningfully wider as a result. And, you know, that's exactly what happened in the GFC. And, and you know, you had a prolonged spread widening um, over, you know, you know, probably 18 months or so. But this time's been different. And, you know, the main difference is really the, the undertaking by the US Fed to, to buy corporate credit. So from the moment the, the Fed announcement happened, we saw strong inflows in the asset class from both traditional and, and tourist investors alike. 
and they were really boldened by the prospect of large price insensitive investors. The announcement effect, sorry, was um, was enough to stabilise and, and drive spreads tighter. Thanks, Richie. And of course, we're going to get right into this this week on Wednesday. We're going to do another Q-Pod with regards to this particular topic. So we might move on and let our listeners listen into more depth there. With regards to the ETF buying from the Fed, anything you can provide us an update there? Yeah, I mean, no real surprises. So, you know, we've obviously been discussing the Fed buying ETFs as, as part of their credit buying program. You know, the pace so far has been about 300 mil a day. And if this pace is maintained, that's about 30 bill of ETFs by the September 30 program cutoff date. Um, in terms of any surprises around individual ETFs at this point, not really. Um, you'll recall that the Fed can actually buy high yield ETFs um, as part of this program. Um, but their, their buying, as you'd expect, has been heavily skewed to IG with only about 10% of the purchases being high yield. The market now is really keenly awaiting the actual purchase of physical credit bonds in the secondary market by the Fed. And this is due to begin any day now. Recall that the secondary market credit facility um, is, is a lot larger and you can, they can buy up to 250 billion bonds. Wonderful. Thanks to Liquid Markets Group for bringing our investors up to date this week with regards to market movements, but also what to be aware of in the week ahead. And Bev, we will look out very closely for those Q1 GDP numbers and see if Australia can avoid an official recession. Have a great week ahead, everyone.